This is Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 149 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to have Mitch Maiman, president and co-founder of IPS, a New York-based product design firm focused on designing and developing intelligent product solutions for commercial, industrial, and consumer solutions. Prior to founding IPS, Mitch had a long successful career at Symbol Technologies, now Zebra Technologies, where he served as Vice President of Engineering. Mitch is a member of the Board of Directors for the Tesla Science Center in Windencliffe and is a long-term member of the Dean's Engineering Advisory Board at the New York Institute of Technology. He earned a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Columbia University, an MBA from Farley Dixon University, and a Bachelor of Science in Engineering Science from Hofstra University. Mitch, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you as uh, as well. I know we've we've had a lot of chances to interact over the last couple of years, and it's good to finally be able to to corner you to get you on on our podcast. So, I always like to start with this idea of the digital thread and ask, what would you consider to be your digital thread? In other words, the one or more thematic threads that really define your own digital industry journey. Uh, yes, thank you. This is a good question. Today, it's really it, almost in every project we're working right now. It, it involves the design of uh, an integrate an IoT solution, uh, Internet Things solution, and by that, a full stack, a full stack solutions that include both hardware for sensing, processing, communications, as well as the software that takes the data, puts it in the right place, manipulates it, converts it to actionable information, which could be in a machine-to-machine context, or it could be it could be direct to other uh, users, users or or employee employees. It evolved from days when this was novel and in a niche to where we are today. That almost anything we do now is what I call smart and connected. It's it is interesting when you talk about the, the history of that. When we when we founded Momenta, we always used to talk about the theme, the underlying theme was the IoT wasn't new or novel. That you had telemetry and machine to machine industrial automation, RFID, right? All of these that kind of define waves. And I can't think of a better company to typify that than certainly Symbol Technologies, who were truly an early industrial leader in uh, industrial data collection. So you led the engineering there from 90, 1991. 2004, uh, I think over the, overseeing a fantastic growth period there, including I remember a lot of work in barcodes and and RFID at the time. What what were some of your key projects and wins? Yes, uh, it was the Symbol Technologies experience was great for me in a lot of different ways. And while I didn't start out heading engineering, I evolved to that point. And there's a lot of things that I was really proud of that happened during my tenure there at, at Symbol. And we were, in in, in the, the days I was there, we were the first with many things. And, and even after we had come up with the first, we always remained the best. And it's in a... In a, in a 
it's in a broad number of areas. That one of the first things that we you know, did when I first got there was moving from these uh, laser-based systems, move, you know, moving light based on laser-based system. We were using that with tubes, tube technology. We moved to low-cost VLDs, visible laser diodes, to read barcode, to read barcodes. And it was interesting because we scavenged VLDs out of the technology that was used for making uh, CD players. And that enabled us to make barcode readers that were faster, had longer range, had lower energy requirements, more, they were more compact, they were smaller. And, you know, that was one of the first things they that I was involved with when I got there. One of the most interesting things, because it fits in with the theme of IoT, was we're talking about probably in the time frame of 92, 93, we wanted to create cordless scanners that could talk to mobile computing devices or to uh, point-of-sale systems using wireless technologies. Now, at the time, there was a Bluetooth committee, but there were no Bluetooth standards. There were no Bluetooth chipsets. There was nothing. And and Wi-Fi, while it was available, it, it hadn't evolved to the point of stability and, and low cost that we needed for making a simple basically connected uh, barcode reader. And I remember the first experiments we did was with one of our engineers, who at the time was an intern. We took the the radio out of a car remote, just opened the car door, and we used that radio, we used that radio technology to enable a barcode reader to talk to a, a PC or a computer. So it was one of the first wirelessly connected scanners. We eventually ended up doing Bluetooth versions not long after, but it was at the time, again, when there were not uh, uh, Bluetooth chipsets available, and those that were available were very immature and, and buggy. We ended up creating some of our own technology in Bluetooth, and we had, the, uh, I would say, probably the first handheld barcode readers that were Bluetooth connected. One of the things that was patented, as crazy as it sounds, but it was a big thing for Symbol in the industry, it's, it was the integration of a barcode reader with a mobile computing device. Now, this is, again, at a time before, you know, mobile phones were ubiquitous or certainly mobile phones that were mobile computing devices. So we were making our own mobile computing systems pre-POM computing days and integrating them with barcode readers. And we were the first in the market to do that. If I go forward to the, the last the last product category that I was involved with in my tenure there was these mobile computing devices go into very abusive environments from a standpoint of, of abuse, physical abuse. They're used in warehouses, they're used in transportation logistics, they're dropped, and they have large displays, and they're very fragile. And most things, even today, most a cell phone in, in a typical, now it's called Zebra Technologies, not Symbol, you know, but in a typical Zebra Technologies play, client, your average um even a good quality mobile phone won't last a week in those kinds of environments. They just can't stand the, the the abuse. And in 2004, we released a series of really rugged handheld mobile computing devices. And I'm really proud to see that even today, they're still doing derivatives of basically the same product because it's been so successful. If I have to summarize, I mean, we were the first in symbol in so many product categories, 
And but the thing that I think I was really proud of, and I'm still proud to see that my my compatriots doing this today is they remain the top of the game in terms of being fastest and uh, most accurate and reading barcodes. They got the longest range. They got the widest range field of view. It's pretty impressive, not just to come up with the first of something, but to be able to sustain that leadership for as long as Symbol has. And I'm talking about a sustained leadership of more than 30 years. And that's a real tribute to the innovation in the company where they can not only create new products and product categories, but they can remain competitive as those products start to become a little more commoditized. That's uh, It's impressive, and I think at the same time, probably a real testament to your own engineering acumen and what you've in, imbued into IPS. So let, let's talk about IPS. So you founded the company in 2008. I, I, I see a list of clients, including Zebra Technologies, Becton, Dixon, Anheuser-Busch, L3, Pepsi, Google, Verizon, Steinway, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What what inspired you to start IPS? And tell me, what have been some of your most interesting product solutions? The, the period of a very short time between leaving Symbol in in 2004 and founding IPS in 2008, I was on a journey to figure out what comes next. I had been at Symbol for 13 years, more than 13 years. I had been involved, who knew, but I was involved with a company from when it was an early stage sub $100 million a year business, not small, but not big, and to the journey to a $1.5 billion company. And I learned a lot along the way, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. And in the interim period, there was a firm called Kaleidoscope. I believe they still exist based out of Cincinnati. They were an industrial design firm that was doing work for my buddies at Symbol. And I knew the founders pretty well, and they asked if I would be up for joining and starting an engineering services business within this design services company. I agreed to do that. I, I eventually dragged in my business partner and co-founder of IPS, Paul Zeverino. I dragged him into Kaleidoscope with me. The interesting thing I learned there along the way was that the business I built was really from the network of people I had worked with over the years people who had gotten to know me and trust my abilities and trust me as a person of my word that when I said I was going to accomplish something, I did it by hook or by crook or whatever means it took, I was, I was going to follow through and, and succeed. So I had this trust of a lot of people in my network. That led to me bringing a lot of clients together that wanted us for engineering services and collaterally for design services. And then having been a manager for a long time, Never really thought much about it in the past, but I realized a lot of my former co-workers were anxious to come join me in my next journey, step on the journey. So they joined me at Kaleidoscope. After a few years, we had a little bit of a, a falling out, and that had to do with why we ended up starting IPS. We left the firm to start IPS, which my vision was that there was a gap in the market at the time where there were not a lot of firms, there were very few firms, frankly, that actually had a full stack of, of engineering capabilities to complement the, the design capabilities. In Kaleidoscope, it was really a, a design function with a mechanical engineering business I built, I, I brought in there. But I saw a broader, had a broader vision, and that led to IPS, which is a, a firm that does not just design, and that's 
hardware and software design, a user interface, user experience, but includes a, a you know pretty strong array of engineering functions, including electrical engineering, embedded systems, RF, mechanical engineering, systems engineering, and as well as software at the application level and up, because it was very apparent, apparent at the time we started IPS that the world was moving to what I called smart connected technology, now it's called IoT, that a full solution for a problem was more than just a nice piece of hardware that could talk. It was really the full stack that included the application level that was uh, very necessary. So uh, upon leaving Kaleidoscope, my, my business partner and I, Paul Severino, started IPS. The, the, the client base started out with based on people that we had a relationship with and networking. And we've been lucky to have built a really nice client base that's not only the large clients that that you mentioned, uh, Ken, the Zebras, the Beckton Dickinsons, and the Anheuser-Busch, et cetera, Pepsi. It's a lot of early stage and startup companies that we engage with as well. So for every big name, there's probably two or three names that people haven't even heard of that we've helped along the way. Some of the interesting things we've done, you know, have not only been for the big companies. Examples of some of the things that are, I think are pretty cool were for Anheuser-Busch, we created something called the Beer Box. It looked like a small freestanding bar that was actually a beer, can, a canned beer vending system that dispensed, that took a credit card transaction wirelessly and dispensed an open and opened a can of beer and dispensed a can of beer open. Intended application there was sports and entertainment venues, particularly in the U.S. where you can't dispense an unopened can of beer. It was a pretty interesting system and, and actually work continues on it today that it's been, they've licensed the technology out to another company and we're working with those guys as well. Another one that people are very, have, have almost everybody that's flown has interacted with is something called the uh, ProVision body imaging system. You all know that everybody knows this as when you get to the airport, you get to the screening station, the, the place where you put your hands up and uh, you stand and the uh, antennas move and it gets an image of your body for and it does a security screen on that for looking for uh, contraband and weapons. The first generation that was out was really a replicated version of a piece of lab test equipment. So it wasn't really a product. It was it worked. And I think at the time of the underwear bomber came along, they needed something right away. The TSA wanted something right away that could help detect explosives on, on, on the body. This technology that came out of a government lab, uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab, PNNL, that was licensed over to L3 at the time, and got produced, but it really wasn't producible. So we created a new generation of that product. And that's the one you probably see just about every time you go to the airport right now. If you're observant, the original machine looked like something out of Frankenstein's uh, lab that you walk through. This looks like it's been designed to be less intrusive, less offensive, it, you know, in terms of aesthetically, it's a little less intimidating. But from a practical business perspective, it's much less expensive to produce. It can be deployed on site much faster. It's more reliable. That was another one that was really interesting. 
And then of the big ones is that I think that comes to mind is the for Steinway, and this is going to be you know counter to what people think of when you think of Steinway. You're thinking of one of the top two piano brands in the country, and if you talk to Steinway, they are the top uh, brand, not in the country, in the world, I should say. The, the, you would think of Steinway, they, they will think of themselves as the best piano in, in, in the world, and arguably they're right. We created what's called Spirio, helped them create what's called Spirio, which is, uh, in essence, uh, a baby grand or a grand piano that is becomes almost an, an IoT appliance in a way. We integrate sensors and actuators into the piano in a way that's t- totally transparent to the user, totally isolated from the action that the pianist feels on the piano when he plays. And it can uh, stream the keystrokes, including the velocities, from that that connected piano to be able to either record or, more interestingly, play on another piano with perfect replication of uh, not just the notes, but the sound and intensity that uh, comes out of the artist striking the keys in different ways. So that's another one. It's uh, very interesting. It's got more than two dozen microprocessors in it. And we continue to work to this day on, on offshoots of that technology, mostly in the software. Another couple uh, that I know are of interest to you, Ken, are, are some of the early stage clients, because we don't always work with big clients. One of our <clears throat> most successful uh, early stage clients is a company called AdhereTech. They're not a um, household name, but what they came up with is a um, smart connected an, an IoT uh, pill bottle. And what we do in the pill bottle is we have sensors that detect the removal of the cap and the change in contents of the bottle. And then with a cellular radio, we commu- it communicates this change in contents to the cloud where uh, we can monitor a, a patient's adherence to a prescription protocol. As you can imagine, this is not the 15, 25 cent pill bottle that your typical prescription comes through from CVS, for example. But if you imagine a couple of use cases where it's just absolutely proving essential, one is when drug companies do clinical trials, they need to gather data on the patient's adherence to the prescription protocol. In other words, did they take the right amount of medication at the right time to go along with the outcomes that they monitor? In the past, this was done by phone surveys, or people going on being required to go onto a, a an app to 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 log the use of the medication, but both of those require direct user interaction, and those can be that can be flawed, that feedback can be missing or, or inaccurate. With this, it's totally can be done totally remotely with with the pill bottle. It was a difficult challenge because these days having cellular connected devices is not that surprising. But to make that, to do cellular in a way that's easy, to do that typically today, people use modules and modules to and an SBC, small as uh, single board computers that have the cellular technology integrated for easy integration. But in the size of a pill bottle, because we were really trying to stay within the footprint and relative size of a pill bottle, the only way to do that was to put the, ch- the cellular chips down on board. And, and those who are in the business know that once you start to do that, 
your carrier certification process goes way up through the roof before before the Verizons and the AT&Ts of the world to let you put your device on the network. So we had to go through that for Adhere Tech, and we've been involved with them for several iterations, and it's led that original prescription protocol monitoring has evolved to other things where patients who take um, life-critical medications that are, could also be high-value, life-critical medications, we can monitor, the AdhereTech system can monitor the usage of those medications, and it can be life-saving. A lot of patients, if you consider some older patients, people that might have some dementia or Alzheimer's, they may forget to take their medications on time, and this is a way of enabling that feedback loop to help ensure that they can be safe and remain healthy, get better health outcomes. So that's one of the smaller companies we've dealt with. Another one is a company called Opti Harvest we're working with right now. I can't go into too much detail there, but it's an early stage company and it's in agriculture and we're coming up with systems to with a mesh with a mesh of sensors and communications we can monitor the conditions in in the farm in in, in big agriculture we're talking orchards, vineyards, things like that. Great examples. I, I had to laugh at the Spirial ones, true digital twin. If you can imagine the uh, the digital piano player matching exactly the real one in there. And and the full stack, I think, theme certainly follows everything that you guys are working on. We were first introduced, I think, in 2016 by a gentleman named uh, Tom Gilly, who is an extraordinary CTO. I think what intrigued me at the time was the way that you were working with younger companies. And you've mentioned several times in the podcast about th that, that work that you do. Since we are avid investors in uh, a number of young companies in this industrial IoT, or what we call digital industry space, it's always interesting to look at how these companies scale up their full stack offerings, because by definition, they are full stack since they're a digital industry. And and so going from internal custom design or their the work they've done internally to some form of scale up down the line, what let me ask, what's the sweet spot? for bringing in uh, a firm like like IPS into this? And I know there's a design and engineering element to that. Yes, great. We've, we have a lot of different engagements in a lot of different ways with clients. So you had mentioned one about us, certain places where we, clients where we've taken equity positions. There are a couple of instances where we've taken a, we've taken an interest. IPS is a small company. Our parent company, Forward Industries, is not huge. And there are a couple of instances where we proactively taken an equity position in the client, and it remains to be seen how some of these are going to pay off. But one of the other things is, I'll just say it was making lemonade out of, out of lemons. One of the tr troubles we have sometimes with early stage clients is their their desires sometimes run ahead of their budget, and they've run the project where where they've run out of capital and in a situation where they've owed us some money, and we've taken an equity position in some of those companies as well, which we're riding out with them as they try to uh, to raise capital and create value in the equity space there. We have high hopes, actually, with a couple of them. That's going to actually be uh, make a very nice lemonade out of the lemons. That's happened. In terms of the sweet spot of a firm like, I, like IPS, obviously, when we work with large, you know, highly capitalized, well-capitalized firms, it's a relatively uh, simple matter to engage IPS. They often know what they want to do. They often know 
where they need help. Not everybody needs all of the capabilities in IPS. Sometimes they just need help in a particular domain, whether it be software or maybe they're having an RF problem or could be a problem with their embedded systems and they need some firmware development help. But large companies typically, you know, have an idea where they need help and and have the wherewithal to to uh, to spend to go solve to solve to create new solutions, solve problems. But the, it's always a little more challenging with early stage clients, and we do work with a lot of early stage clients. In fact, I sometimes work with some that are even pre-funding, and I try to help coach and guide them to. Uh, through the process of getting fund, getting funded. The way IPS is able to help them is that we try to identify any of the, the small stumbling blocks that may be getting in their way of being able to demonstrate their technology or take it to the first or next step to be able to present their technology to investors. We try to, in certain instances, especially with early stage companies where funding is always at a is, is always tight is try to figure out like what is the most what is the nearest term essential problem they're having that's really a barrier for them can we get in there for a few hours for a few weeks help them through an initial problem and then bail out and step aside really to while they go out and get the funding and move to the next step we can help these firms with a little dose of our staff which is very experienced we have a lot of engineers on board in each function that have got more than 15 years of experience. Not every startup has that breadth of talent internally. Sometimes just being able to talk to somebody with that experience can help get over a hurdle that's that's an impediment. One of our clients referred us to another client, and that's a big way that we, we land new business at IPS. But the way he, he referred to us and to his friend was basically to say, that they have to work with us because IPS is the special forces of product development. And we were very proud of that perception that people perceived us as experts as we're not the special forces as when they're not the guys that stand on the ground for, for three years. They go in, they complete a mission and they step back until needed again. And I think in early stage companies, we can be thought of as that force that we can jump in, solve a problem and step to the side until you're ready for us again. I love that description, actually, and, and it reminds me, while we can't talk too much about it, we brought you guys in on a fairly large uh, M&A deal not, not that long ago, and, uh, and it, it's funny, you actually did exactly parachute in <laughs> to a what was going to be a challenging situation and had even more challenges with it and perform admirably. And gosh, I think we interacted probably with a dozen of your people, and I know there's a lot more there. I would certainly vouch for this Special Forces of Product Development moniker. I think that's absolutely great. You know, one of the things, uh, Ken, that I like to help with, too, is I, not every client's even ready to engage the special forces, for example. Sometimes they're just trying to get to the next level of capital, a raise, of capital raise and putting together their pitch decks and things like that. And one of the nice things about being an IPS is I get to see a lot of early stage companies. And I get to see which ones succeed and which ones don't succeed in terms of moving the ball forward. And so I like giving advice to early stage companies to try to help them present their ideas in, in an authentic but the best light possible. And, and that's something that I personally enjoy doing. That's great. Perhaps it's a great segue to, to my closing question. And that's really where, where do you find your inspiration from? Mm -hmm. 
That's a good question. And again, we've known each other for a while, and I really am a, a people-oriented person. So I can't say it's a, it's book. there's a particular books that I read or online media that I get my inspiration from, though I do get some, I do read some some online magazines and get some idea, get ideas there. A lot of it comes from my just interaction with both my staff and with my clients and even client prospects. IPS is an interesting vantage point to see though from which to see the world because we're seeing ideas that are coming to the table for things that are going to really be the future. It's people who are really coming up with innovative new businesses and new uh, product ideas. And even though the folks that, especially in the earlier stages, as not everybody is successful, not all of these ideas are going to succeed in the hands of the people I may be meeting. But their good ideas do 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 survive, and I I I've loved the chance to be able to see that little vision into the future, and it really charges me up to want to learn more, find out more, discover more, and that's what keeps my 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 energy flowing. And I can I can certainly vouch for your own work as a IPS, and you have touched at least one of our our small portfolio companies. And I continue to hear great things from the coaching and work you did, and also helping them develop their network. Admirable. So, so Mitch, thank you for spending this time with us today. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it, and thank you for the opportunity. So this has been Mitch Maiman, President and CEO of IPS. And I guess if the Special Forces of Product Development moniker were to stick, I'll call you the uh, General of the Special Forces of Product Development. How about that? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I'm actually going to attack this one. Myself, I think I'm going like to call it Special Forces Engineering. It's perfect. <laughs> That's it. Maybe I'm more like the Colonel because I'm a little closer to the operation than the General might be. There you go. There you go. Either way, it's been great to have you. And I think I think that moniker really does define the value you guys provide, both to large companies and, and certainly to small. And we look forward to continue working with you in, in that regard. So thank you for listening. And please join us next week for our next Momenta Digital Thread podcast. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.